Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We're going to talk about what everyone's talking about right now, which is the song WAP by Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B. Great song, fun song, kind of dirty, whatever. But it's like people have never heard music in the past 35 years before because it's become a whole thing. Let's listen to one Ben Shapiro read the lyrics of this song. Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. What is happening here? I have Rob Sheffield and Brittany Spanos. What is happening here? What? Why is this a thing? What? What is going on, guys? Well, in the history of music, people have not enjoyed women talking about their sexuality and having agency over it, especially when it's black women, especially when they're popular, especially when they're politically outspoken, as one Cardi B is more than, I would say, most popular stars at her level. But people do not like that, especially very conservative men. So here we are. Yeah, Rob, why do you think out of, and I think what Brittany says is 100% true, and yet there have been dirty songs by women of color, and yet this one has caused the first kind of lyrical controversy of this nature in a long time. We're going to talk about how there's a long history of this stuff, but it feels like it's been a while. It feels like, especially conservatives, this, this feels very old-fashioned and retro. It feels like they haven't gotten themselves worked up about rap lyrics in a while. So why now? Why here? Why now, Rob? It's one of their greatest hits that they'll always return to. Uh, <laughs> and, and because, you know, it works for them. Because what else do they have? You know, what else do they have going for them? What else do they have to rattle up their base about? Logic? Reasoning? Consistent, coherent arguments? No, 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 no. Just a panic about about a song like this. It's such a beautiful thing that hip hop can still make people so scared of it and so mad. It's just a beautiful thing. Once it stops being able to do that, something will be lost. But a beautiful that it's just such a great song. Cardi B, Megan at absolute top lyrical strength, both so virtuosic in their own ways. And they made themselves so unignorable with this song that they managed to set off an old school type of lyric controversy like you thought they didn't have anymore. Like, wait till, these, <laughs> wait till these people here, you know, two live crew. It was 30 years ago that two live crew were arrested for performing on stage with their lyrics. And it's just kind of a beautiful thing that, you know, that this is still a kind of outrage that's still going on. Yeah, Brittany, you were pointing out some of the specific facts about Cardi B and Megan that, that might have gotten this started. One of your points earlier, kind of the idea of why this song and why right now, I think that especially as rap has become the pop music, like the mainstream music, I think it's hard for to kind of a lot of conservative voices to rally behind, like, you know, will like find this one popular rap song when it's, every popular song is a rap song. Like they have no, you know, it's hard, you can't like pick and choose, but then you have someone like Cardi who is at, her zenith of celebrity she's you know one of the most famous voices like she's she's been able to maintain a certain level of like being in the zeitgeist even with a, a long gap or long heavy quotation marks around that gap between releasing songs and releasing an, an album she's you know a likable star she's a politically outspoken star uh she was one of the biggest mainstream supporters of Bernie Sanders when he was running in the primary. And she, you know, has spoken out against Trump continuously since she's been, since she was on Love and Hip Hop, like since before Bodak Yellow. 
and Megan, she has only grown in popularity. She had her first number one earlier this year with Beyonce of all people. I mean, that's, you know, can't get any bigger than having a song, a number one hit with Beyonce. And, you know, being a woman who was recently in the news, we had seen a lot of misogynoir against her with when she was shot by Tory Lanez and both of her feet and people kind of staying silent on that, but sort of that being a big news topic just leading up to this. I mean, they've never been more in the news than either of them have. And then they released this song that's so fun, such a celebration of themselves, of the female body, of like sex, of just being an open person. And of course, it's going to piss off a bunch of just like, you know, crotchety old men who like don't want to hear that from two young, popular, very cool black women. Our brilliant colleague, uh, Charles Holmes, pointed out began with this guy I've never heard of before in my entire life, uh, James P. Bradley, who's running for Congress in California. And he purportedly happened to hear this song. And uh, he said, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion are what happens when children are raised without God. Or what happens when children are raised without God and without a strong father figure. Their new song, The WAP, which I heard accidentally, made me want to pour holy water in my ears. And I feel sorry for future girls if this is their role model. First of all, people do not pour holy water in your ears. That is uh, not a re- recommended therapy. It could be bad for your, your eardrums. I, I don't. I don't recommend that. And, well, great and then, like uh, to throw holy then, water literally everywhere, but in her ears. It was all over the apartment. It was all over her grandchildren. <laughs> if, if my grandmother did not throw it in my ears, it is not belonging there. <laughs> I mean, first it was bleach, and then it was holy water. I mean, they, then it's like, you know, they're going to need a mop for all that liquid. <laughs> so, um, and then someone named Deanna Lorraine, who recently lost a Republican primary election, uh, said that Cardi B and Megan Thee Stein just set the entire female gender back by 100 years. Hmm. With their disgusting and vile WAP song. And here, here's the key, I think, here's the key point that Brittany were, was making. Remember Bernie Sanders' campaign with Cardi B. Kamala Harris called her a role model. The Democrats support this trash and depravity. So it's Cardi B's political activism, no doubt, is a huge, huge part of this. Yeah. And all of this kind of led up to the Ben Shapiro thing, which, which a lot of people have remixed. Maybe we can hear one of the remixes. Here's some of the lyrics. You ready? I mark horses in this house. There's some horses in this house. There's some horse in this house. There's some horse in this house. I Do you think that Cardi and Meg are actually kind of psyched about this? I would be if I were them. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, you know, it's probably a combination of, it seems like they have a little bit of an annoyance with some of it, you know, just in the aspect of like all of the shaming against them that I think that both of them have already received a lot of in both of their careers individually. And I think that, probably doesn't make it easier to handle but at the same time like the song was already it's not like this controversy made the song big i think there's right. so much to celebrate with like this was happening because the song was blowing up so much on the first day like there's no way that that guy like accidentally heard it on the first day that it came <laughs> out like he went to youtube <laughs> as we all did and typed in <laughs> Cardi B, Magnus Stallion, up and like was like, let's hear it. <laughs> and like, it's one of those things where I, I'm sure that they love that this is kind of a conversation on a certain level of like promotion and Cardi B being such an industry nerd and like loving the idea of like what makes a song a hit and what makes a song part of the conversation. And, um, but I'm sure on, you know, on another level, they're kind of like, why can't we just sing this song? Like, why can't this song just be popular? And like, 
not be a debate as like so many things that they've both done have turned into. On a broader level, it's an election year. And you look back at the last election year when the Republicans were trying to reelect a deeply unpopular right-wing president, which was 2004. And who did they have playing this role? That was Janet Jackson. That was the year of Janet Jackson and the Republican Party basically framing its vision of domestic morality around having Colin Powell's son at the FCC persecuting Janet for her wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl. This is a go-to strategy for them. And it has a proven track record of success, particularly given like how few other cards they have to play. And it paid up, you know, 2004 was also year they demonized the, the Dixie Chicks, or they were still the Dixie Chicks then. And they said they were ashamed of coming from Texas because of, of, of the president at that time. And uh, this is a go-to strategy that, that female voices in pop music stirring up outrage against them. It's a go-to strategy for them and it works with their base. And again, they don't have a lot of cards to play. Both times we're talking about a deeply unpopular Republican incumbent with a terrible economy and a horrible foreign situation. Yeah, the only right-wing, you know, musicians and artists that they have are like Kid Rock. You know, it's like, it's like artists that are like not standing for them too. It's just like, you know, the most, the biggest atrocity. And it's like, okay, it's like Cardi versus like Ted Nugent. <laughs> As you were saying earlier, so much of it has to do with the female voices in this song and, and their agency and, uh, and just the tone of how they, they, uh, they boast about their sexuality in the song. That's so provocative. I mean, in a way, it's a credit to their virtuosity as lyricists and, and performers that that comes across. But you pointed out the agency is, is what's so disturbing to, to people. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really key point. And the way to see it is that 30 or more years ago, things just as filthy, if not more, were extremely common in rap, but for the most part, not exclusively, they were coming from men. So in order to have the shock value now for that, they had to find women saying the same thing to try to run this play. But I would say that, Rob, just as many of the other plays that they're trying to run, like Trump talking about this, the Housewives of America and destroying the suburbs and stuff, I don't think these, this isn't catching fire. There's no, no one's proposing a committee to examine rap lyrics. No one's really that upset about it. In fact, mostly it's just people making fun of Ben Shapiro, as far as I can tell. So is it possible that this tactic, amusing as it is, has, so to speak, run dry? That's that's quite a so to speak. I have to give you a moment of it, respect for that, so to speak. It wasn't even on purpose, but I, I just... <laughs> well, as you pointed out, it's, it's different from songs that have stoked controversy like this before. You know, like there were no female orgasms on any two live crew record or, or any NWA record. This is a really different kind of record. And just the, the commanding nature of these female voices is, is that's such a huge part to do with how it's controversial. Mm. I mean, that's, is that the key difference? I mean, that's kind of what you already said, Brittany, but maybe you can expand on it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's extra complicated because of the fact that the history of women in rap has been about sex positivity and the history of women in rap you cannot speak about without talking about the fact that every popular female rapper leading up to Cardi and Megan has fought to speak of their own bodies and speak of their own sexuality with agency and with confidence and to, you know, rap about it in a way that means something to them. It means something to being a, a woman of color and kind of expressing that in that way. And, you know, it 
also boils down to the fact that historically the industry has not left a lot of room for women in rap to succeed. And we're kind of seeing this amazing period in time where like we're having more simultaneous popular women in rap music kind of being able to dominate on the highest level possible in a way that we have not allowed in the industry for decades now for the entire time that rap has been part of the of popular music of the conversation of popular music um so i think as that's coming like cardi and megan know their history they cardi specifically cited trina you know she cited all of these florida rappers who like have built the base for this you know you go back to miss yelly you go back to lil kim you, you know saw and peppa you know, go back to every woman who has paved the way like they know their history and they know exactly who they're paying tribute to with this and even before rap going back to every blues woman going back to you know the era of funk going back to everything that and disco and thinking about like donna summer and betty davis and all the women who have made such who made such strides to lead to this moment none of those women were accepted or you know deemed good or deemed worth not paying attention but worth like you know respecting in any way well, the different, yeah, I mean, like Lil' Kim and a million other people, like you said, rapped very much about the same things. I guess the difference is even within rap, these two artists aren't being marginalized. Instead, they're at the very center of what's going on and not just the center of rap, but at the center, as you said, of pop music. So it's like by taking, it's almost again, like the GOP and conservative women are, are afraid of what was once marginalized coming to the forefront. And that perhaps is where this is all symbolizing something larger, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think it's like, not something that they can have sort of like a hobby of being like, making something like pulling something out and being like, isn't this crazy that people are listening to this and this is terrible. It's like, actually everyone's listening to this and it rules and like, <laughs> it's not going to go away anytime soon. And it's not something that you can like erase from what's going on in culture right now. And Brittany, you also made a, a great point or pointed to an article that made a great point that we can also make because it's, it's a easy point to make, which is that a, uh, there's a huge hit song by uh, everyone's uh, one of everyone's favorite, which is uh, Harry Styles has a song called Watermelon Sugar about the same goddamn thing. The songs and- are in conversation with one another. Absolutely. <laughs> Lemon, rice, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, we, we have so many songs from the male perspective on this. Like, it's just like, yeah, like, let, let these two women rap about it. Macaroni in a pot. Like, who cares? <laughs> Yeah, as you said, these songs are in conversation, you know. And, but uh, go on, sorry. It's a beautiful, inspiring thing to to see and to hear. Yeah, it is. Just to unpack what we're talking about, I mean, Harry Styles has a song that is at the top of the charts, literally about the same subject matter, and not one of these people has brought that up or read the lyrics out loud in a dismayed tone. Perhaps there's a touch more metaphor going on in his lyrics, but it ain't subtle. I mean, you know, so it, this just underscores the double standard. And, you know, I mean, the other thing is, of course, there's a million songs this explicit from in various ways from the past decade by, by male and female artists. I mean, I don't see them getting mad at this Mac Miller song from a couple of years ago by a white male, uh, Cinderella, which is like, honestly, like I was like, Certainly not scandalized, but it's dirty enough that when I heard it, I was like, damn, that's a dirty song. And then Ariana Grande bragged about it being about her. So it's like, but I guess that is what kind of 
makes this a little anomalous because it, it, there's a little bit of a time capsule, like they were just unfrozen mm-hmm. and, and just suddenly heard what music is like now. I, 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 you know what I mean? Like it's oh, just. And, and you know, they own ACDC records. You know? <laughs> like it was fine when it was, you know, like these you know, white dudes like singing this stuff. It's, it's just it's become culturally very different. But yes, like, and that's been, you know, like the, the mainstream of, you know, I mean, ACDC, all those guys have ACDC records yeah. somewhere, like, and there, there's not double entendres, you know, like at the ACDC, not quite at Cardi Megan levels of virtuosic lyrical nuance, you know, mm-hmm. it's just very, uh, very out there. <laughs> I was going to ask Brittany to perhaps break down further the career arcs of of Cardi and Meg that sort of got them to this point where they are for a moment back at the center of a renewed monoculture. They made a song so dirty that they brought the monoculture back. No, but seriously, like how, how did we get here with them? Yeah, I mean, specifically with Cardi, her early career, you know, coming into a show like Love and Hip Hop, which was her first big thing that she did was be on this VH1 show kind of about the, you know, New York rap culture and like people kind of about to break into the music industry. And she was a stripper. She's been a sex worker. That's, you know, that was her career for years up until she started to, and while she was starting to begin rapping, like she was still working as a stripper. And so that should not be neglected in the controversy because I'm sure that is a big part of how people know Cardi, how people still see her um, and kind of, she's always been so proud about that history and has spoken about it and has always supported sex workers, strippers and people who have had similar career arcs as her. And she's always been very outspoken about that. And so I think that's not to be, <laughs> has not been ignored by a lot of the conservative rage over the song. And I, I, I would just interject that the combination of that background with her extremely forceful and well-argued support for Democratic candidates is must be in itself extremely maddening to people on the right. But sorry, go on. Yeah, and I mean, she started rapping while she was still on the show. She released a couple of mixtapes. Um, you know, all the songs are dirty like she's never been a person who's not been a dirty rapper she loves like she's always talked about Lil Kim as one of her biggest heroes like she is someone who like has always spoken openly about sex and she's always spoken openly about her body even on her video her Instagram videos like she's that's always been a topic of conversation she loves talking about and she loves speaking openly about um I believe Brittany the the lead to your profile of her was her talking about this very same body part. So it's not like... Yes, we talked about yeast. She greeted me fully naked to talk about yeast infection. So, you know, it was... It's been a road to... That's part of the road to WAP. If you ask Ben Shapiro, that's part of the road to it. Um, but yeah, she she's always been super outspoken about it. And I mean, Bodak Yellow, that was right after she got signed to a major label. She had gained so much attention through Instagram, through her mixtapes, through Love and Hip Hop, and Bodak Yellow was her first official single when she signed to Atlantic in 2017. And it blew up. I mean, that song, I mean, just the combination of all those things in the same way that this song, you know, it's kind of this combination of openness, of celebrity, of kind of her just being herself constantly, like, you know, that made Bodak Yellow such a, a big moment. And then her following album Invasion of Privacy became even bigger and she's remained a huge public figure. And we're seeing Meg blow up and we're seeing her kind of 
go from being this super respected underground rapper in Houston, just, I mean, slowly getting bigger. I mean, you think about Hot Girl Summer last year. She had, that was before the song came out, but that phrase became so embedded in culture. People were using Hot Girl Summer for everything. People are still using Hot Girl Summer. And that was just a thing that she, she kind of creates these characters. She's like a huge anime stan and she loves, you know, creating these kind of like over the top characters in her, her for mixtapes for her songs for her different eras and so you know that was kind of like this like peak sort of meg like i'm creating this hot girl summer era had her first hit many months after creating that phrase with the song called hot girl summer with Nicki minaj she's just another person who has become such a viral star like being able to really be herself on social media and create a huge fan base through that but also a super talented rapper and someone who's widely respected in the industry in the same way that Cardi has been, where they have both been able to collaborate with the biggest people in their field. Meg collaborating with, having her first number one with Beyonce earlier this year and working with Nicki and Cardi working with Bad Bunny and J Balvin and like having, you know, and working with Gucci and like everyone, like they have both gained so much respect again for being themselves and also gained controversy for being women who are open and who, you know, have never shied away from speaking their minds. One of the more absurd and retrospect discussions in the world and even on this show is, you know, will Cardi ever have a song after Bodak Yellow? It's like, yeah, yep. I, you know, like the, not a one hit wonder. I like it was huge. It's still, I hear it all the time coming down the street in Brooklyn. She has spoken about how she let me and she wants to create a hit. She was kind of affected by her song Press, which I believe came out last year, kind of not being Bodak Yellow and I like it level big, but that song, I mean, still is like, I feel like I heard that song everywhere. That song was not a, a flop. <laughs> it was not like, it didn't disappear. So yeah, I think her, her gauge for success has, is at a, a very high, high level right now. And this is huge. This is probably gonna be bigger than Bodak Yellow because it's a great song and a great video. So before we move on to the glorious and not so glorious past, what other thoughts about this moment and about Cardi and Meg? Uh, Rob, you were pointing out the the regional collaboration of this would have been unthinkable in an earlier era. Yeah, definitely, definitely in like you know the pre Big Pimpin era. But like in the eighties, nineties, the idea of a rap star from the Bronx and rap star from Houston making a record together would have been just like completely scandalous. But something about Cardi and Meg is they're both such culturally ambitious in terms of how they see hip hop. They're both visionaries. You know, Cardi's album, Invasion of Privacy, you know, it had a, a definitely like a South track with, you know, Bick and Head. And you know, I like it being like very self-consciously going into the, the Latin, the Boogaloo sound. She's someone who is very, very ambitious for what she sees as, as claiming all different types of music in the name of hip hop. and putting all this different kind of stuff together. So even just hearing Cardi's voice and Meg's voice together on the same record is just, you know, a tribute to both of them in terms of, of just their visionary imagination. Absolutely. And, and Brittany, any last thoughts on, not last, because we can go back to it, but any more thoughts on just the two of them in this moment? I mean, they put together a great video. They uplifted other women. I think they had people like, yeah, they had Normani, they had Mulatto, like they had like these really great, rising stars, really great young black women in their video with them, celebrating them and kind of on with this like big moment that they, I'm sure making that video knew that it was going to be a big moment given both of their stances in pop culture and how great the song is. Um, and you can kind of tell from a lot of the behind the scenes videos, they were having so much fun making it. Like 
it's just such a celebratory song and it's so great to see you know again with the history of how we've treated women in rap to see two young massive still growing still going to you know become more and more legendary and popular as the years progress kind of these two women come together and like make this song and uplift other women in rap and pop music in that process in the video is i mean it's just such a a great moment to see so if we look back, there's a lot of ways to look back. We can go all the way back to Louie Louie, which I think we probably should. But there's been some recent things, which I was planning to do. But there's been some recent things. that It wasn't exactly lyrics, but I do think of the Beyonce Super Bowl performance, the halftime show, and how that sparked a right-wing thing. And that that's one of the most recent similar examples to this. And it is, again, interesting, as, uh, as you both have pointed out, that it's again, a black woman, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Maybe that seems to be where the heart of these controversies now goes. It's, yeah. it's the most threatening person, apparently, to a certain stripe. Yeah, yeah it, it, it is interesting, obviously, to, to look at it that way. I mean, I'm thinking of like the controversy around the word Becky that happened after Lemonade, like, people treated that like it was the worst possible slur or like the most offensive thing that Beyonce could have said. I mean, in the same way we've seen with Karen this year, but like, you know, especially since, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like, I can't think of Beyonce being a particularly controversial figure in pop culture until she also became more political until she also, you know, did a black lives matter song and video with freedom. And before she, spoke out more about what was going on in the world and kind of knew that she could do, I mean, in a way that it has not always been allowed for black women to be politically outspoken while also maintaining a certain level of popularity. But like once she kind of realized that she like can exist in that and said, you know, fuck it and was able to make that type of video and song like freedom that seemed like there was a, a big, you know, notable backlash against her and that Super Bowl performance and her doing a song like Formation and having a video that addressed Hurricane Katrina relief and, you know, had a a Black Panther tribute in all the dancers and everything. But yeah, I think it's very clear what happens when, when Black women speak out against atrocities and against racism and against, you know, this world. Just let it be noted that yeah, let it be noted that Brittany was gesturing very broadly. (laughs) There was, I thought, an unusually incisive Saturday Night Live skit around that time called uh, The Day Beyonce Became Black, I think, where where it showed these like white people suddenly realizing that Beyonce was was actually black. Yeah. (laughs) I mean she had to exist in a way that, you know, I think she had come up at a time when black pop stars were taught to, you know, assimilate and be comparable to their white peers who would always have it easier and have it, you know, she's spoken about that a lot, but, and it been in her songs, but um, yeah, I mean, for her to kind of make that move obviously made her a huge target when it came to conservative backlash. Should we talk about two life crew for a minute? It feels like we should talk about two life crew. Rob, easiest prompt in the world. Talk about two life crew. (laughs) (laughs) Two Live Crew, they come out with uh, As Nasty As They Want to Be in 89. They also came out with um, As Clean As They Want to Be, <laughs> which, you know, one of the most unbought records of the 80s. <laughs> um, and uh, 
that's around the time that, you know, hip hop is really pushing boundaries with, you know, groups like NWA, who got a threatening letter from the FBI at one point after their song, Fuck the Police. And this was a, an extremely controversial album, not because two live crew were particularly good, but just that they were so filthy and they actually got arrested on stage. Record store owner in Miami got arrested for selling the album. He was very much engaged in national culture wars at the time. It's hard to underscore how major that controversy was. Yeah, and after that, they had that great song about it, Banned in the USA, which Springsteen gave them permission to use. Uh, just, you know, two live crews singing Banned in the USA was kind of awesome. Um, but this was a moment where, uh, where you know, Miami bass music, which was largely dismissed as, as a joke by the rest of the hip-hop world, certainly in the Northeast U.S., which still thought of hip-hop as its, its private franchise. And then so it was a controversial record all around and, and just really strange to go back and, and think of what a, a massive bombshell it was in the culture wars of the late 80s, early 90s. It did require the Supreme Court to rule on whether the music of Two Life Crew was obscene, and they ultimately ruled that the, it was not. Actually, to be clear, the Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal from Broward County as to whether the uh, whether the music was obscene. And thus, you know, I, I think it's you could, in fact, say that uh, the Supreme Court decided that uh, Two Life Crew was not obscene. So that's the highest level of uh, music criticism in, in history, I think you could say. And yes, NWA is an amazing example. The FBI contributing uh, some music criticism. But let's jump back to Louie Louie, because I, I, we, we have to. Uh, and I'm sure there were pre-rock lyrical controversies, but I, I guess the, would it be fair to say that Louie Louie was sort of the first rock and roll era lyrical controversy, Rob? I think so. Definitely the first, the first time where the FBI actually played a record at all sorts of different speeds, trying to find the dirty lyrics. Everybody was sure that they were kind of dirty, secretly, somehow buried in there. And of course, if you're a kid with an overactive imagination, you hear all sorts of dirty stuff in, in Louie Louie from, uh, you know, I felt my boner in her hair onward. <laughs> and uh, I remember it was my mom who pointed out all the dirty lyrics. Louis Louis, a record that the FBI actually investigated and ultimately pronounced with the famous line, indecipherable at any speed. <laughs> the singer for the Kingsman, he still had his braces. So the feedback between his braces and the microphone made it uh, impossible to figure out the words that he said. This is a record so raw that there's that great part where they come in at the wrong time for the final verse. And just like that, the part where you could see the drummer and the lead singer making angry eye contact with each other at the studio over the false start. You know, this is like a phenomenally ragged, rowdy, raw record. And, and this was a record that the FBI was so terrified of. It says a lot about how terrifying rock and roll was in the early days for people. <laughs> Rob, I was going to ask you, and I, I will point out that we are recording this under the most bizarre Zoom errors ever. We are pushing through it. We are bold <laughs> pioneers in remote work. You all listen. You have no idea what we're dealing with right now, but I'm Ben sure Shapiro heard us talking shit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Tipper New Gore game is not not, not weak at all. <laughs> Tipper Gore, who was alive, somehow has, also has a ghost that is interfering with this podcast. <laughs> Tipper. Anyway, 
Rob Sheffield, I was trying to ask you, maybe you could explain why Tipper Gore, who is currently the ex-wife of former Vice President Al Gore, and at the time was the wife of Senator Al Gore, perhaps you can explain why Tipper Gore will always be infamous in the history of music. Well, it's the 80s, and it's the dark, cold, conservative days of the Reagan administration. And uh, Tipper Gore, who at that point is just a relatively obscure wife of a relatively obscure Tennessee senator, she hears a uh, her daughter playing a record by this incredibly blasphemous and filthy musician named Prince, who is, of course, also the most explicitly religious artist in the top 40 at this point. But she hears her daughter singing along with Darling Nikki, which, to be honest, is an absolutely filthy song from uh, the soundtrack of Purple Rain. And that sets off uh, this group of Washington wives who uh, spend the rest of the 80s and well into the 90s trying to uh, censor pop records, rock and roll, hip hop, and uh, making stars out of artists that nobody ever heard of before, like this L.A. metal band called Wasp, who <laughs> absolutely nobody heard of until Tipper Gore posed for one of the absolute greatest rock and roll photos of the 80s, flipping through records at a record store, holding up a Wasp album cover and looking absolutely sick to her stomach. And she hasn't <laughs> even heard it yet. Imagine how appalled she'd be like if she actually heard Blackie Lawless try to sing. It absolutely <laughs> made that record. But uh, this set off this gigantic nationwide panic over porn lyrics, which given the um, tremendous uh, social breakdowns of the 80s, maybe not the number one priority for people to be panicking over. It is extraordinary to look back on the, the Filthy 15, which were the most objectionable songs, according to the PMRC. I read that in Rolling Stone at the time, and I said, I like how they have Madonna's Dress You Up. Imagine <laughs> a world where, a, where Dress You Up is considered so unthinkably obscene <laughs> a group of politicians put it on a list called the Filthy 15. That isn't at this point even one of Madonna's 100 filthiest songs. <laughs> Innocent days of yesteryear. Yeah, I'll just say it. Looking at this list of songs, I'm like, well, maybe Ben Shapiro does have a point. <laughs> so, just kidding. But when asked about the pop music that Tipper Gore actually does like, she always mentions George Michael and Wham. She likes that. That's wholesome family entertainment. So naturally, George Michael hears this and decides to become the absolute gayest, I want your sexist, leatherist, explore monogamyist, absolute filth mongering. God bless him. The idea that he was acceptable to Tipper Gore really is responsible for all the brilliant aesthetic moves that he made over the next few years because he absolutely wanted to disassociate himself from that. It was definitely a thing that people laughed at and mocked at the time. When Lou Reed played Farm Aid that summer and, and he, uh, he dedicated Walk on the Wild Side to the PMRC. It's the kind of thing where something that had always been part of pop tradition was now suddenly very much out in the open because Again, there's this filthy 15. You know, if there was one thing I was sure about, it was that we were going to be talking about Lou Reed's Farm Aid performance today. <laughs> <laughs> but a beautiful thing, you know, Walk in the Wild Side. <laughs> you know, that was a huge hit when I was a little kid. <laughs> 
It's also fascinating that On the Filthy 15 is a song on ACDC's Back in Black that honestly I constantly forget exists. Let me put my love into you. Track five. It's not. It's possibly the worst song on Back in Black, and that's the one. That- I love that song. <laughs> I love how also like that proves that ACDC's metaphors were too complex for some people. <laughs> they got that one, but giving the dog a bone went right over their head. I like <laughs> never. Too many women, too many pills. I don't, too metaphorical for me. I've never looked at this list before, and honestly, like a great playlist. <laughs> yeah, no, vanities on here. Like, <laughs> dress you up is a great Madonna song. We're not going to take it. It's so odd to see on here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, a song a song that really is so educational. I mean, you think of the vocab in that song. Your life is trite and jaded, boring and confiscated. You know, like. Of all Twisted Sister songs, to sing like that one is being filthy. That was part of the, the general cluelessness that people found so amusing about the PMRC and a, a tradition that continues to this day. Imagine uh, the Washington Wives of, of 1985 confronted with an ode to vaginal lubrication as explicit as, as well. <laughs> Imagine that Shebop was <laughs> by Cindy Lauper was, <laughs> was considered worthy of being on this list. It's I give them I give them credit for picking up on that. <laughs> a lot of deep cuts. A lot of deep cuts. It's almost like <laughs> they just they just went through trying to find Also, what's the problem? Why we're not going to take it? Like what was wrong? that why? <laughs> the video, the video is anti-parent. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to do with your life? It, it was against yelling I I want to rock to a to a parent and bl- violence and, against parents. <laughs> oh right, because there was there was a real danger of playing a guitar so loud that your father will blast out the window. That was nope. that it, was, it's all laughs until it actually happens, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so I love imagine the brainstorming that went into choosing a print song for the filthy fifteen. They really could have just like given him his own, you know, filthy fifteen. And and this is pretty early in Prince's career. You know, he, he was already a legend at that point, but he'd only been around making records for six or seven years at this point. And Prince has pretty much defined the whole idea of sexuality and pop music. I will say that the purportedly objectionable line in Darling Nikki has never made any sense to me. Like, they're in a lobby doing that with a magazine? Like, what? Who, what, what, what is he talking about? lobby standards were very lax in those days, Brian. If you didn't have your own magazine, they'd bring one to you. It was just kind of acceptable hotel lobby behavior. What kind of hotel was this? I, I really, I, I have so many questions. And, I, and I, I, you know, of all the tragic things I didn't get, I should have asked him. I, I guess I, I could have brought it up, but I think in his Jehovah's Witness days, uh, I wasn't even supposed to curse in front of him. So bringing up his own dirty lyrics of the past perhaps was, was verboten. I, I don't know. But I'm like, I, let's pretend we're married, you know, which is a song that, I mean, Prince had such like an amazingly original approach to all this stuff that it's just hard for them to complain about Prince without making him seem cooler. Yeah. <laughs> And Wasp, a band that literally nobody had heard of, much less thought were cool, suddenly became an international scandal, thanks to the promotional efforts of Chipper Gore posing with the cover of Animal, Fuck Like a Beast. (laughs) Now, I have a question about Wasp, which is, you know, they they were W period, A period, S period, P period. And I guess that we are sexual perverts was one interpretation. And then truly horrifyingly, the actual wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants was possibly another reason. So that should have been what they were investigated for. That's horrifying. I don't, I don't know about that. What's up with that band, Rob? What's the deal with them? 
<laughs> uh, you know, for them to get the publicity blitz of a lifetime for this record that, quite frankly, even by Wasp standards, is a really terrible Wasp record. Um, <laughs> but that was part of their, their presentation. This was also the period, strange and quaint as this sounds, when uh, a lot of these same people with the censorship sort of mindset were obsessed with the idea of backwards messages. Yes. Uh, and it was astounding the work that went into playing records backwards, looking <laughs> for things that sounded like language, to the point where Judas Priest were actually went on trial as part of a, a manslaughter trial in Nevada in 1990, around the same time as as the uh, two live crew NWA controversies, claiming that there is a backwards message on their album Stained Class that contains the words, do it. <laughs> and uh, that was a case that actually went to trial. Judas yes. spent that entire summer in court. And of course, Rob Halford took the stands playing lots of other bits from the album backwards and <laughs> trying to find messages like, she asked for a peppermint and, and she wouldn't give me one. Um, but people were obsessed with the idea that yes. the devil was leaving backwards messages on Phil Collins records and ELO records. It's completely unthinkable. And that's really the problem with 2020 is no one streams backwards, Rob, ever. No one. <laughs> it's like, where are the backwards streams? <laughs> yes. We need backwards streaming so we can figure out what kind of, you know, filthy demonic messages are also embedded in this song, apart from the very obvious ones. We're a year off from that. Or people will get just bored enough in the house this year. They will. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to play WAP backwards, and we're going to find out what it's really about. It's about something much worse, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, you have been listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. I was lucky enough to have Rob Sheffield and Brittany Spanos with me, who soldiered through the worst technical difficulties we ever had, and hopefully the worst we'll ever have, and hopefully you couldn't really tell. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. I always read them. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we will hopefully see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.